Welcome to Evidence-Based Aesthetics. And now your hosts, Kristen and Dr. Larry Group. Well, hey campers, welcome back to Evidence-Based Aesthetics, day two of Quarantine Club at Camp Coronavirus. I'm Dr. Larry Group, and I'm with my wife here. Chris Cr Group. Woo! Okay, well, we had a, quite a bit of response to our first podcast, a couple questions, a couple different things. I'm just going to lay out again, just briefly, what we're going to do, and then we're going to jump right into our quarantine questions of the day and get rolling, Okay. Cool. All right. Why are we doing this? Because we're in self-isolation due to some symptoms and we're going to be sitting here for, I don't know, the 13 days. Okay. Here's what we're going to do during podcast number two and all the remaining podcasts. We're going to use evidence-based resources to discuss the coronavirus. We are going to cough a lot because <coughs> I've been coughing all day. We are going to try to entertain ourselves for 14 days and hopefully edutain you. Uh, we're going to debunk myths, bad advice, and weird science. Talk about aesthetics for all you stuck at home not seeing patients. We're definitely going to whine and complain about silly policies that don't match up with peer-reviewed research. We are going to drink Corona beer. Woohoo! Uh, we are going to shamelessly promote today. We're going to be promoting our Stary Stamp home device with coronavirus coupon savings with a large portion of the proceeds going to provide PPE, personal protective equipment, to local AZ healthcare providers because there's a shortage of those things. Um, and we are going to also be donating some of our or most of our med spas PPE to these local Arizona healthcare providers. Okay, here's what we're not going to do. We're going, not going to pretend we are experts on anything except Corona beer. We are going to not engage in political talk, although we will bring attention to the information <coughs> and sometimes misinformation disseminated by our government. We are, if we're going to offer unsubstantiated opinions, we are definitely going to clearly point out, I'll say something like, in my humble opinion, or in my opinion, so you'll know that whether or not it's something that I'm coming up with versus something that's research-based, okay? Let's get Quarantine Club started. Let's get it started. Ha! Now, before we get started, what I'm going to say is, this thing is happening so fast and in real time. It's one of the reasons we're doing a daily podcast on this, because from yesterday to today, we have a lot of new information, um, new cases that have been uh, showing up, more deaths. Um, but it's 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 not like we could do this like in our normal podcast, which was once a month, right? Because we'd be through it. So when we talk about information, and if it doesn't match up with information we had yesterday, it's because it's new information. So as we roll through this all together, we're going to find that some of the information that we started with may not be the best information that we have as we go through it, just because we're getting more information. Sure. I'll try to bridge the gap <clears throat> between what we've talked about and what's been changing. It takes me a good five to six hours a night to go through all of the information. I stay up late doing this. I watch Bravo. <laughs> and I put all of these resources together. Um, I try to pick the most current resources. A lot of the resources I'm going to be using today came from either yesterday or today. Um, but again, some of the policy decisions that are still being told for us to do haven't changed. Um, so we need to talk about, you know, how does that match up to what's actually going on in the real world? Cheers. Cheers, Corona time. Woo! Okay. Um, before we get to the first new quarantine question of the day, I have to answer a submitted question. Uh, submitted question. Someone asking me, I'm expecting a package from China. What should I do? Should I wipe it down? How long should I wait to touch it? 
Okay, this is gonna be one of those things that is Dr. Group's humble opinion. Now, I did try to use resources from different agencies, CDC, um, WHO, um, Dr. Fauci, is that Fauci. Fauci. Anthony Fauci. Different, th different things that I could find, but not all of it was in one place. So I tried to disseminate all that. But again, this is my opinion of what should be done based on what I've found in probably five or six research articles, okay? So first thing you're going to do is, if possible, you're going to try to have, when the deliveries show up, have the person that has the boxes in their hand, deliver it to an isolated area that can be either quarantined or at least sectioned off. So rather than have them come in and just sort of flop a package onto your front desk, don't do that. Because if there's things, if there's a microorganisms or on your fomite, which is the box, it's going to get aerosolized if it gets thrown around. So when they come through the door, the Amazon person, the FedEx person, the UPS person, the mail guy or girl, you're going to say, hey, could you please put the package, gently put the package over wherever it is that you're considering to be your area to store packages, whether it be a closet don't put it in the bathroom because you got to go to the bathroom. Put it in a room that you're not going to use if you can't, okay? And does this mean, because the first question, the question was China. Don't you mean now everywhere? Yeah, because... well, I'm going to get to that. Whether the box <clears throat> comes from China or comes from anywhere else, it doesn't matter if it comes from China anymore. We're past the stage that we think that the only way that we can be transmitting this disease is if we're somehow we had contact from China, okay? Yes, there was disease in China, but there's also disease in Italy. There's disease pretty much all over the world, okay? So let's forget about whether the package comes from China or not and treat all packages as suspect. Now, are they suspect from the person handling it shipping? Or what about the people, the, the mail handler? Remember, those people see lots of people all the time. Or the FedEx guy or girl, the DHL person. So the Amazon delivery person, they're touching lots of packages and having face-to-face -face contact with lots of people. So we have the original packager, and then we have the person delivering it. So my first piece of advice, looking at from different resources, is to when the person walks through the door with a package, rather than just have them throw it down, have them actually themselves take it to the spot that you want them to take it and gently sit it there, okay? If you need to sign something, put a glove on to sign it, then throw that glove away, okay? That's number one. Next thing you're gonna do is figure, is it an essential item you have to open and have, perishable, whatnot, versus a non-essential item? Um, your fib, fab fit fun, uh, one of those things. <laughs> fab fit fun box. <laughs> or the thing that I, you know, I got a motorcycle part coming from eBay. Do I really need to open that right away? No. Okay, so let's talk about if it's one of the things that we consider to be, it, it's not going to be perishable. It's not a, a medical supply we need tomorrow or something like that. Let's say it's a non-essential. Don't wipe it down. You'd be tempted to say, well, I just take some wipes and wipe it down, right? Yeah. Why do you not want to wipe it down? Because the chance of disturbing and re-aerosolizing the particles on the fomite, the box, okay? When you're wiping it down, all that stuff's going right in the air, right in front of you, okay? Don't wipe the box down. Instead, let's rely on the time it takes, right, for the virus to inactivate itself. This is, again, for the non-essential item. Okay, so when we looked at our research, right, we found out that how long do things take for <coughs> it to... For, for the virus to persist, that it can be transmitted. Well, we remember we, we had that article on persistence last yes. yesterday. Well, this one's basically is just a re recap of that. Leave it alone in a quarantine area. Cardboard and paper is about 24 hours. So sit in the area, come back 24 hours later, okay? If it's plastic, because a lot of these ones, we get these, uh, you've seen them, they're like uh, 
like a, like a plastic foam envelope, right? Yes. Um, it's there. There is some. You get a USPS uses yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. So that one, that one's going to be three days based on on the resources that we've had to show that 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 type of plastic, the virus can remain viable for three days. So you're just going to let it sit there, and then you can open it. Now, if it's an essential item and you simply <coughs> must open it. You're going to want to bring a Ziploc or a garbage bag that you had stored in a package to put the item that's inside the packaging into it when you open it. So let's say Amazon shows up and it's, uh, I don't know, uh, PB masks, right? You have to have them. So you, you can't, you don't want to wait the 24 hours, all right? So what's going to happen is you're going to grab a Ziploc bag that you had in a box, or if it's a bigger item, grab a bar, uh, like a glad garbage bag, okay? I'm not saying they're sterile, but they probably don't have the virus in them, right? Correct. So you're going to have that right there. Then you're going to put your PPE on. Now, you're going, to, you're going to go outside to do this, okay? Why? Because if there is any type of virus on the package, it, the air will help take it away as right. opposed to keep it into a container. Right. Area. If you're going to aerosolize it, aerosolize it outside away from other people. Away from other people, okay? So what you're going to do is put on your full PPE. What does that consist of? We're going to talk about that in just a little bit, but... Eye protection, mouth protection, gloves, and a gown. Okay. And what do we do for that? We're going to then go into the well ventilated areas from others. Then you're going to take a cavicide wipe or cavicide or a bleach solution. And if you if you see if you go to the CDC and put in CDC bleach solutions, I'll tell you exactly how to make it. Okay. It's very if you don't have cavicide. You're going to wipe the box outer box down for at least three minutes, changing the wipes at least once. Okay. So you got your full PPE on, you're outside, and you're wiping the box down. You're basically disinfecting the box, okay? Why are you doing that? Because you, because you didn't it. wait the 24 hours, yeah. right? If it's cardboard box or the three days. So you're, you're, you're expecting that there's some, you're hoping there isn't, but you're not taking any chances. You're going to try to inactivate or kill or disinfect the box before you open it, right? Okay. You're going to carefully open the box, try not to disturb the surface. Don't hack into the box or rip it open or any of that. Try to cut it on the seam. If you can, take a blade or something like that. Obviously, don't cut yourself, but you're going to very gently open it. You're going to then change out at least one glove when you go to grab the inside item and then drop it into the Ziploc or the garbage bag. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because you just use those gloves to disinfect, outside. and now you, those gloves are now contaminated. At least change out one, the one that's going to grab what's inside of it, and drop that into the Ziploc bag or the garbage bag if it's a bigger item. Okay, Set that aside, away from what you're doing. Okay, Then you're going to want to properly dispose of the packaging and your PPE. Doesn't that seem like an incredible amount of work? Yes. But, Let me ask you this, though. A lot of people, if they're med spas and stuff, don't have... Like disposable gowns has something more medical. Okay. What could so, they use instead of that? Um, you could uh, wear like a lab coat or something like that, and then you launder the lab coat after that. Okay. Um, if you really want to be super ghetto, you take you a garbage big bag. garbage bag, poke <laughs> your... I'm no kidding, though. It works. Poke your two arms holes in the head <laughs> hole, pull it over that, <coughs> and bag yourself. Got to bag it up. Exactly. <laughs> I haven't even had one of these yet. That's sad. That is like, pretty sad. But well, remember, uh, is this 100% necessary? I don't know. I don't we know. don't know the rate of transmission in fomites yet. What we're finding out, though, if we keep reading the, the research that's coming out day by day, is we're starting to see more and more cases that were probably caused by indirect contact, not direct me sneezing at you and you getting it in your mouth, okay? Okay. 
Does that make sense? Again, this is Dr. Group's humble opinion of how to deal with this, if that's what you want to do. If you want to throw caution to the wind and open things up, at least open it up outside. Do yeah. that at least. We started doing this at our office a week and a half ago. Yep. Um, where we don't let just, I mean, used to packages would come in and one of our staff would open it up and stuff. And we don't, we stopped doing that a while I have them ago. quarantined. The easiest way for me to do it is, is that nothing I have right this second is, is, is essential. So I just let the thing sit for the least, if it's cardboard, 24 hours. Yeah. And then I don't, then I'm not saying I don't worry about it. I still gingerly open it. No, but we also, we're putting it in a, a part of our office that isn't accessed by a lot of people. That's right. So we've got it out of the front where we have people coming in um, and we have it in the back of the office and then it just sits there for a couple of days until, um, as a matter of fact, there's a lot back there right now and I wasn't really happy <laughs> walking in. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard about it too. There were so many different boxes, but what Chris doesn't understand and I'm, I'm pointing out now is, is I can't move any of those boxes. They haven't been there long enough, okay? So once that quarantine time is up that I can open them, dispose of the boxes properly and do those types of things and move the product where they belong. Okay, let us get into the new quarantine questions of the day, okay? Now, like we talked about yesterday and I've alluded to several times, we're gonna talk about testing criteria as of March 21st, 2020 in Arizona, uh, as well as, as, as nationally, okay? So we're going to use resources. Our first resource was from March 19th, 2020, it came from, it was a uh, KTAR News article where a spokesperson for, the, for ValleyWise Health is a ER doctor, and his name is Dr. Frank Lovecchio. And he basically says that in order to order, in order to order, like that, mm -hmm. in order to have a COVID-19 <clears throat> or SARS-CoV-2 test ordered for a patient, they have to meet certain criteria. It's not that anybody who wants to be tested can be tested, okay? And we're gonna go into this, okay? So I'm gonna read this. As the number of coronavirus cases continue to increase in Arizona, healthcare facilities and their staffs have to effectively prioritize their time, testing and treatment regarding the infectious disease. Although many Valley residents wanna be tested for COVID-19, they're still calling it that, not everyone qualifies. Dr. Frank Lovecchio said certain criteria must be met. He explained that the most eligible to receive testing for coronavirus are those who are already very sick with something such as pneumonia or an individual who already requires the use of a respirator. And patients who's traveled to a country where the coronavirus outbreak is happening and are showing flu-like symptoms are also eligible for testing. He said, if none of those criteria are met, then we're not allowed to give the test. Okay, so <clears throat> there was a press conference held on 3-20-2020 at the White House, and Dr. Fauci, mm -hmm. Fauci, 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 I'm sure I say it right, um, basically the question was, can everyone who <clears throat> wants a test get a test? Remember, this was yesterday. He, he, Dr. Fauci acknowledged point blank that the government is not there yet in meeting the demand for COVID-19 tests, breaking with the government line, which has sought to focus on ramped up efforts. The answer is yes, we are not there yet because otherwise people would never be calling up saying they can't get a test, Fauci said when pressed by a reporter on the issue. Uh, then we had Vi Vice President Mike Pence then redirected focus to the progress saying, I just can't emphasize enough about the incredible progress that we have made on testing, Pence said. All of you are reporting and media outlets around the country are 
are as well that many, many more tests are being performed every day, literally by tens of thousands. No. Okay. So let's find out if that's true. Okay. So that was uh, resource 13. Now, <clears throat> do you think there might be a reason or is there some line of a reasoning coming from either the CDC or from these practitioners or from WHO of like why we wouldn't want to test? Is it helpful or not? Okay. So I'm going to go to resource 32 here. And we're going to talk about this. Okay. Okay, so the title of this article is, it was um, March 20th, is Vigilance Fighting COVID-19 in Arizona is Crucial, but Not Necessarily Widespread Testing, Health Officials Say. This was an article that was taken from a press conference um, from the spokesperson of the Arizona Department of Health Services. Isn't that Dr. Kara Christ? Yeah, it's one of those people, yes. <coughs> so... It basically says, uh, this came from Jessica Rigler, the Assistant Director of Public Health. Um, it says, as of Friday afternoon, there are 63 known cases of coronavirus in Arizona, including eight in Pima County. Widespread testing is not, this is coming from her directly, widespread testing is not necessarily that important, she said. And the role of so-called drive-through or drive-up testing for COVID-19 should be reserved mostly for healthcare workers who are monitoring their health and for people who work with vulnerable populations. Now, is that the same thing as the guidance that we got from the president and from the other part of ADHS, basically saying that uh, if you were very sick or needed to be in a ventilator or had been to China, now we're basically saying we don't care about that either. Now you have Dr. Kara Christ, the director of the State Department of Health Services, says Friday that Arizonans should pretty much forget about getting testing to determine if they have the virus. That's a direct quote. This was yesterday. We continue to face a national shortage of test collection supplies and lab reagents, Christ said. There are not enough tests at this time for everyone who wants to be tested. But she said that for those who do not have extreme symptoms like difficulty breathing, knowing whether they have COVID-19 or something else really won't help them. She said, it's important to be clear there is no specific treatment for this disease as a result of a COVID-19 test will not change your clinical treatment while you are sick. Point of this article is, is that it doesn't really matter if you get the test or not because how you're going to be treated doesn't change. The problem that I'm starting to see and that we're going to talk about is, aren't we basing our policy guidelines of, let's, let's pick one, the one that from Arizona that says that if your county doesn't have any cases, then you're go, you don't have to shut your restaurants down, correct? But if your county does have a case, then you need to have only drive-through services. Well, if we're not testing people anymore because it doesn't matter. <clears throat> how are we going to know? How are you going to know? So you're making policy decisions, but you're not actually testing the population anymore. That the policy is being derived from. That's it. So basically, that's the criteria of, of how we make decisions of whether or not 10 or more people can gather or whether or not restaurants are shut down. Um, it also is affecting things like how much food we're stocking up on. Are we going to be told to shelter in place for two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months, things like that? This is the problem if we're not if we're going to say we need that to do tests to to accurately determine 
the both the mortality rate and the infection rate. But then we turn around and say, hey, testing doesn't matter, so it's not going to change the course of treatment. And by the way, you might as well forget about testing. But yet those are the things that we make our policy on. That's where the confusion is going to and the fear and the uncertainty comes from in the population is they're being told multiple things at the same time that the policies are made up of, but yet those criteria aren't being fulfilled. I want to get a test. I have symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. You want to get a test. You have symptoms. But we can't. We were told what? We didn't go to China, and we're not sick enough to be on a ventilator, so therefore we get we, we can't get the test. Okay, so let's look at the resource guidelines that Arizona is putting out that this affects, okay? That's going to be resource number 38. And yeah, this took me literally all night to put this together. It really did. I think, I don't know what time. I put my sleep mask on, I think, around 11 because the lights were still on, and I don't know what time you came to bed. Okay, so this was from today. It says the number of cases in Arizona is 104, number of deaths is one. Now, a little bit later in, in, in this podcast or, or the next podcast, we're going to talk about the severity and how lethal SARS-CoV-2 is. But right now, we're just going to focus on is what are the guidelines saying, okay? So what I want you to get out of this is by Friday morning, 34 new cases were announced by state and local health officials, bringing the statewide total 104. It is the largest single-day increase since the outbreak began, and it appears the state is nearing the point where cases double daily, okay? Now, if we have one person, right, out of 104 cases, then what is the mortality? One person died. What's the mortality rate based on that? 1%. 1%. But what we're going to talk about in, in about an hour or so is that we can't use that at, to determine mortality. We're going to get completely wrong numbers. That's not the way epidemiology works. We have to factor it into things, how long it takes for from the time person gets sick to the person time that they could possibly die. That's been calculated as 14 days, and that needs to be factored in the equation. The other thing that needs to be factored in the equation is how many people actually got sick that didn't die. What's the problem? Let's go down to this next set of statistics. And this is where we start to, where the rubber meets the road, okay? How many people were tested? 394 people have been tested in the state of Arizona. So a third of them tested positive. Right. Three, but there are 7 million people in Arizona as of uh, the m- most recent uh, data counting from U.S. News and World Report. 394 is what percent of 7 million? 0.01%, which is much less than the margin of error. <coughs> What's the problem with this? If we only tested 394 out of 7 million people and we're using that data to set policy like Go through the drive-through, shelter in place, don't get together in groups of 10 or more. What's the problem with that? It's not an accurate representation. Because it's such a tiny, it's 0.01% of the population. So, and those people are the ones that are the sickest, right? Because you have, in order to, the criteria to be tested is, is you had to, whether this has changed by the time I, this airs or not, we don't know. But you either had to have gone to China and you had to be sick enough to be probably be on a ventilator. Isn't that going to be the sickest people? 
Yeah. So the sickest people, do they have a greater or, or less likely chance of dying if they're very sick? They have a greater chance. So aren't we artificially increasing the death rate by only testing people who are the sickest, Yes. but not testing all the people who actually have the disease, but recover? They either have no symptoms, have minor symptoms. If we counted all those people, when we start to do things like mortality rate, wouldn't the mortality rate be much, much lower? Yes. And I think it would be a more positive message. It would be a positive message. But but what would be the problem if, if we transmitted that data? If we tested everybody, hey, let's just say a magic, uh, you know, I'm a genie and I give you a wish and you can, everybody in the state of Arizona can be tested. And we test everybody and we find out that the mortality rate is 0.0001. I'm making it up. But based on there are so many people that have it, right? But very few people die. When I tell you to shelter in place or practice social distancing, are you going to listen to that? <clears throat> no. Because the risk is so low. So if we inflate the death rate by either either on purpose or not on purpose, by just looking at them, by only testing the sickest people and only providing tests to 0.01% of the population, that gives us a false rate of mortality, a false rate of transmission. What we're doing is we're, we're stopping the strategy of trying to track the track the disease, and now we're just doing things like mitigation efforts. We basically gave up. Can't stop it, so we might as well just do what we can to mitigate it. I'm not saying that social distancing isn't the right strategy, because whether you're sick or not sick, social distancing reduces the risk that you can can contract the disease, or if you have it and you're you asymptomatic, you can affect somebody else. So that is correct. The other the issues I'm having is is stuff like shelter in place for long periods of time. People hoarding things. They don't know if they're gonna be able to get to the store or not because they're gonna be stuck without toilet paper. All this crazy. The economy, should I sell my stock off? Things like this. Should I send my workers home? Am my workers allowed to come to work or not? How long do they have to be? And these are the questions, these are the policies that are being disseminated by both the federal and state government based on data of 0.01% of the population. That's the problem, okay? Okay, what about, let's do one more. Let's look at research 35, which is the AZ quarantine guidelines. How does, again, how does this affect this? How does this only looking at a few people? Maybe. Okay. <clears throat> Here is the guidelines that came from AZ. Can someone spread the virus without being sick? People are thought to be most contagious when they are most symptomatic, the sickest. Have we looked at research yesterday to, to, to possibly at least disagree with that premise? Yes. Okay. What about the fomites, all of the surfaces that people are, are coughing and sneezing on? People, whether or not those people are the <coughs> sickest or the not sickest, that has not, that's not even talking about that, right? No. We could be touching a surface that someone coughed and sneezed on. Didn't we say that it takes five days average for symptoms to show up? Mm -hmm. Yet the viral load starts to build. On day four, mm -hmm. their viral load's fairly high. They don't have symptoms yet. Could they transmit the disease? Absolutely. So... That is a, that's something that's sort of counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, they, it, it says you have to be the sickest. People, 
the chances of that the people being most contagious are when they're the sickest. That's it gives you a sense of though that if people don't have symptoms, then they're not contagious. That's kind of what people get from that. That doesn't help the public, does it? No. So if you're not coughing and hacking, I can just I don't have to do social distancing with you, right? I you know you, be. but I know you. We, we we do our what we carpool together every day, right? I'm just talking, or or somebody that I see, I get my coffee from you every day. You're not coughing, so you're fine, right? This is how we make these social distancing decisions, because what we're saying is, is when we get this guidance that says people are contagious when they're the most symptomatic, that says to us, well, if they're not symptomatic, they're not contagious. That's the problem, right? I wonder if they'll let us use the HOV lane without more than one person. <laughs> when does a person get released from isolation? Okay, this is important. Basically, this concept of who gets released from isolation is based on the data of how many people have the virus, the lethality rate, things like that. It says isolation in a hospital or isolation at home? We're going to find out. If a patient has been tested for COVID-19 and is awaiting results... It says, remain under home isolation precautions. That applied to what? 371 people? Or people were tested. Because that, no, that's all that was tested. What about the rest of the 7 million people? What are they supposed to do? This is just Arizona I'm talking about. If a patient has tested positive for COVID-19, remain under home isolation precautions for seven days from the specimen collection or until 72 hours after fever is gone, whichever is longer. Didn't we just see from Dr. Fauci that the symptoms persist for 14 days? Okay, so all I'm saying is, is that the guidelines that are coming from the state government are not in keeping with the guidelines or at least the data that the experts like Dr. Fauci are putting out there, okay? Next, if a patient has been tested negative for COVID-19 and has compatible system symptoms, stay at home until 72 hours after all symptoms of acute infection resolve. If you tested negative right? Mm -hmm. Then why do you need to stay home at all? I don't know. You have seasonal allergies. You got something else. Tell me, Again, we're, we're creating policy, <clears throat> telling people what to do. This is where they're going for guidance. Based on what? What data? What, what protocol? What, what information that's being disseminated that makes sense? It's certainly not the research. If a patient has not been tested for COVID-19 and has compatible symptoms, fever, cough, shortness of breath, stay home away from others until 72 hours after fever is gone and symptoms of acute infection resolve. 72 hours, that's only three days, but yet the symptoms can persist for 14 days. When does a viral load stop? We don't know that yet. Is 72 hours long enough? I have no idea. But we don't know. They haven't been tested, <clears throat> so we don't even know if they have it or not. If a patient has not been tested for COVID and has n other non-compatible symptoms, Stay at home until 24 hours after all symptoms are gone. But what are compatible symptoms? So what are non-compatible symptoms? We don't know that because it, do, does everyone present the same? We have, if we looked at the data, which is going around right now, we look at the China data, the Italy data, the U.S. data, it shows that there's a huge portion of the population that are either asymptomatic or mild symptoms that are not typical. They're people who don't have fever. And yet... A few of those people have been tested, especially in places like South Korea, and they've come up positive. So, yeah, they don't have the symptoms, but what can they do? Infect someone else who could get a much worse version of it, right? Worse symptoms, right? So, do we see the mismatch between the testing criteria and the policies that go into what you should do about testing? 
There's no data that, that supports it one way or the other, and they're conflicting on almost all levels. That's that's a serious cause for concern. It's a lack of leadership, and it's it, it's a lack of 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 a, of a message. Rather than do all of this nonsense, it basically says, if we know we're not going to be offering testing because as as the Department of Health head said, Ms. Church says, you might as well forget about getting a test. Then none of Christ, I'm sorry, none of these things apply. You can't get tested anyway. So what and should it's you not do? Make a difference if you do. What should you do then? Can, can, why not simplify the message? Practice social distancing. If you have symptoms, self-isolate for 14 days. That's all you had to do. Rather than if a patient has tested negative, but what is this 72 hour stuff? None of that well, stuff it's makes like if sense. You have, it's almost like a board game where if you have this, then go to the next level. It's a weird have, flow chart. It yeah, is. It is. As opposed to, I don't it, just it, make it. Everybody, if you have symptoms, you're home for 14 days. And exactly. those of you that can stay home, that are well, should also be staying home so you don't have an opportunity to pick exactly. up the virus. And now, I, 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 you know, I give credit where credit's due. The president's plan for this 15-day shelter-in-place social distancing is sort of what they're trying to say. It's these weird caveats that get thrown in there that sort of defeat the message. Like, go ahead and go through the drive-through. Why was that put in there? I don't know, because that's going to be a hot spot. That's the opposite of, of sheltering in place, isn't it? It's basically, I'm going to get right next to somebody in the drive-thru and touch a bunch of stuff that everyone else has touched. How does that make sense? I know it's less convenient, but it's also inconvenient not having toilet paper either. Okay, let's get to quarantine question of the day number two. Now, this is going to be a long one, kiddos, okay? And the reason why this is important is because this particular question dictates a lot of does our PPE work? What should we be doing? A lot of these, the six foot rule, how long, how people get the transmission of the disease, all hinges on this notion of is SARS-CoV-2 spread through aerosolization? Okay. So we're going to spend some time on this because this is super important. This is a pivotal point. So here we go. What does the CDC say? All right. Let's start out with what the CDC says. We always want to use our resources instead of winging stuff. The CDC says, person-to-person spread. The virus is thought to spread mainly from person-to-person between people who are in close contact with one another within about six feet through respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs or sneezes. These droplets can land in the mouths or noses of people who are nearby or possibly be inhaled into the lungs. Now, what was the most important piece of that right there? Respiratory droplets. That last bit that said, or possibly be inhaled into the lungs. It's one thing for me to to sneeze right in your face and you're going to get that direct blast, okay? But that extra little piece on the end that says possibly inhaled into the lungs. Being inhaled in the lungs is, now we're not talking about droplets now, right? We're talking about smaller droplets, okay? Things that are aerosolized, (coughs) and we're going to get into this, Okay. This all depends on how you define a droplet, and this is where the weirdness starts, okay? We have this arbitrary idea in, in the literature when we talk to epidemiologists and researchers about this idea that the, the size of five microns <coughs> is, is the arbitrary cutoff of when something becomes a droplet or when something becomes called a droplet nuclei. Thank you for my... Uh, sanitizer break. Sanitizer break. <coughs> <coughs> State boards. Again... 
Um, we're not going to get into the weeds on this, but it's important that we get, get through this stuff because we really need to sort out, is this, does this disease transmit through, can you breathe this in? Can someone cough and two hours later, you walk into the bathroom where they coughed and breathe it in? Can that happen? Because what we're saying right now, directly saying is, no, I have to pretty much cough within six feet of you or sneeze and my, and my sneeze blast or cough blast is going to land in your mouth. It's not going to be where I cough and then someone 10 feet away from me breathes that in and gets sick. Well, couldn't okay. get in your eyes too. Well, sure. Eyes too. You're right. But the point is, is that instead of having this idea of these big droplets that are just being propelled by my cough, we're talking about I cough, these tiny, tiny droplets are floating in the air floating for a while, a couple hours, and then someone walks by and breathes that and they get sick. Can that happen? There is conflicting messaging going on out there. Now, again, before we panic and before we make decisions about what we should do about it, let's first look at the data for a while, look at all the different data that's out there, and then try to put that data together. We're going to use research and science, not opinion not bad science, not um, people's blogs. We're going to use things like the New England Journal of Medicine. We're going to use things like, we'll, we'll attempt to use the CDC and the WHO, making sure that we, we get a sense of where did they get their models from, okay? Again, this comes down to how you define the droplet, okay? So basically, there's this idea of upper, upper respiratory infection and lower respiratory tract infections, okay? And this idea of, of, a, of a droplet size being five micrometers big is that a, a droplet that's five micrometers or bigger the way that our body's respiratory system supposedly works for a healthy person is that that type of droplet will get caught in the upper respiratory area. What is considered the upper respiratory area? <clears throat> it's going to be the, the pharynx and above. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> and then if it's smaller than five microns, it has the capacity to be breathed into the lungs and bron bronchioli so that the, the bronchial tubes and the lungs and the alveoli that are there can actually have that um, a lower respiratory tract infection. The problem, the difference between the two is they're both serious, but in the lower respiratory tract infections, we then have the problems of pneumonia and things like that. Uh, those tend to be more serious. So this, this is this idea of particle size, okay? Unfortunately, a lot of this data and this testing that was done on talking about aerosolization and droplet size, when, the, when we're talking about the WHO, this was done, this research was done in the 1950s and is still the model being used today. I'm not saying that that's bad research. I'm just saying that there has been other models over the past uh, 70 years that have been updated. So let's look at that WHO uh, data, okay? That's resource 20 here. Excuse me, guys. Okay. This was a WHO publication called Natural Ventilation for Infection Control in Health Healthcare Settings. It is one of the guidance documents that's used in designing hospitals and designing policies as well as, as environmental controls on how uh, healthcare facilities and ventilation interact and how airborne viruses, airborne pathogens, if you will, react in healthcare settings, okay, indoor settings. What they looked at was models that, that basically talk about how does air move and 
what are the risks associated with that? This is a very long document. Now, luckily for us, I highlighted the areas that I want to talk about. So just give me a second to get to them. Okay. So here's two definitions that they used. One is called droplets, okay? The, the WHO definition of the droplet is an in, inspirable particle larger than five micrometers in diameter, which can be deposited on the upper respiratory tract levels and mucosa. Those are called droplets, okay? Then there's something called droplet nuclei, dried out residuals of droplets that are less than five micrometers in diameter. So remember, these, these tiny aerosolized particles flying around are in your spit, in your saliva, right? They dry out very quickly. So once the water's gone, they become much lighter because water's heavier and they become much smaller because now the water mass and the water volume is gone. Those are called droplet nuclei. So kind of like a dandelion versus a dandelion that's dried up and that's going to be blowing apart. Yeah, pretty much like that. So, so basically five micrometers is the cutoff standard, even though it's arbitrary. Okay, so this is, again, that's, that's their definition. So now we're going to apply that definition here. Again, this is several hundred pages, so I'm just going to get to the pages that we want to talk about. Takes a little time to find it. There it is. Okay. Opportunistic airborne. Okay. What we're looking at is they are they classified the scope and definitions of three transition models for the system systemic review what we're looking at is sars okay the coronavirus and influenza okay so sars cov1 this is um 2003 um or it, it, yes so basically they say the transmission of droplet nuclei at short range during special circumstances such as the performance of aerosol generating procedures associated with pathogen Transmission. Now, when they're talking about aerosol generating procedures, they're talking about surgical procedures that use hand pieces. Dentistry would be one of those mm -hmm. things, okay? A droplet, in their definition again, is droplets are generated from an infected source person, primarily during coughing, sneezing, and talking. Transmission occurs when these droplets containing microorganisms are propelled a short distance, usually less than one meter. Okay. I want to point out, again, that this research, some of this research, when it talks about the, the modeling of one meter, was done in the 1950s. And when that research was done, they were looking at air that was still. They weren't looking at, at things being propelled by coughs and sneezes. <clears throat> How fast do you think a cough or a sneeze uh, velocity can get up to? 100 miles per hour. Almost 100 miles per hour, in some cases above that. So when they looked at the model from the 50s, they were looking at still air. Uh, particles dropped in the air, and then how how long does it take for it to go? When we're looking at sneezing and things like that, we can just propel it more than one meter just by coughing. We, we there are models that we, that you can look at from CDC that actually show someone coughing, and it, and it actually shows how far that cough and that well, sneeze go. Isn't it not only going to go forward? It's going to go. It's, it out. plumes. That's exactly so right. So it's not going to be the size of your mouth once it's out there. It looks like a imagine a dragon was roaring. The fire comes out narrowly, and then it goes out in a plume in all different directions, and it gets wider as it goes. Okay. Now again, stay with me on this, guys, because this is the important stuff is I'm setting up to talk about why PP may or may not work, okay? And this is, it makes a difference because it, let's find out, let's say that the PP doesn't work. 
We're pushing so hard for people to wear PPE. What if it doesn't work? Okay, that's what we're talking about. Here we go. I'm going to need to get to almost to the very end of this thing, which I believe is Appendix C, where the good stuff is. Again, this is a WHO document, and it's talking about defining basically airborne infection and some recommendations of how you develop and design healthcare environments. Okay, droplet generations and sizes. This is from uh, Appendix C1. The term droplet, as used in this context, consists mostly of water with various inclusions depending on how it is generated. Naturally produced droplets from humans, droplets produced by breathing, talking, sneezing, coughing, include various cell types, epithelial cells and cells of the immune system. Physiological electrolytes contained in mucus and saliva, those would be sodium, potassium, and chloride, as well as potentially various infectious agents, bacteria, fungi, and viruses. <coughs> Droplets greater than 5 micrometers tend to remain trapped in the upper respiratory tract, the oropharynx, nose and throat areas, whereas droplets less than 5 micrometers have a potential to be inhaled into the lower respiratory tract, the bronchi and alveoli of the lungs. Pretty much said that, right? And again, this is where you can, anybody can find this. It says, humans can produce respiratory aerosol droplets by several means, including breathing, talking, and coughing, okay? I'm gonna make a point here very soon. Published data have suggested that sneezing may produce as many as 40,000 droplets between 0.5 and 12 micrometers in diameter. Okay, that may be expelled at speeds of up to 100 meters per second. Whereas coughing may produce up to 3,000 droplet nuclei. What are droplet nuclei? Smaller than five micrometers per second. About the same number as talking for five minutes. What does that mean? It means that the coughing is more problematic to other people than the sneezing. Yes. So coughing produces one type of aerosolized sized particle, Which smaller is go than more five. Lower into the lower. Sneezing produces bigger particles, right? Ones that are five micros to, to 12 micrometers in diameter. Okay. One of the things also I think with that is like if you have, if you're going to sneeze, you usually have some warning that you're going to sneeze most of the time, not all the time, but coughing sometimes is an involuntary reflux. So you don't know when you're going to do it. So you have less time to cover it or get a tissue or something like that. Yeah. I also think that, you know, some of the things that they talked about, in fact, even the uh, early guidance from the White House was if you're going to cough, cough into your elbow. What happens if you cough into your elbow? They've modeled it this. Goes it goes up, up and, and down. down. That plume still goes. It just goes up and down. It's not blocked. The no, air is going to escape. It's going forward. It's going up and down. But as far as going up, is that a problem? Because these are droplet nuclei. It is if you're a tall person. And a short person's cough. No, but think about it. Droplet nuclei are smaller than five micrometers, mm -hmm. which means they can, they're can they aerosolized. It means they hang out in the air for how long? We Two talked hours. about this yesterday, three hours, right? If I, if I cough into my elbow, the droplet nuclei go up into the air. Let's say I'm in the bathroom. How long are they going to remain in the air? Three hours. So if, I, if you do that, <clears throat> and then I go to the bathroom 15 minutes after you go to the bathroom, what happens? I could potentially be... Infected because they're going to probably settle back down a little bit, aren't they? Not for three hours. They're still no, suspended. But, I mean, but if you, you shoot it up into the sky and it's a tall person, is it up there and then somebody that's shorter walks through, are they actually going to walk through No, it? it's not like that. It's not like short. Think about it as a cloud. Okay. Think about it. It's hard to say. Think of it like a fart. 
<laughs> no, but really. Like a cartoon version no, but of it's, a fart? It's going, to, it's going to disperse and get bigger, right? It's a cloud. It's not just like I have to move and bump into that. It's going to actually get wider and wider and wider until, until it, it, it disperses throughout the air evenly, right? Okay. Gases mix. So the, what we're saying, these particles are so small, they act as almost if they're a gas. They're aerosolized. That means they're so small. We're not talking dro big droplets that fall to the ground because of the weight of the droplet. These are small enough that air currents and just the air alone, the air movement alone, suspends them in the air. Okay. So if I sit down on the potty, am I going to be in that cloud? Yes. How much viral load does it take to get sick? We don't know that yet. But that's some of the advice of cough into your elbow. It's better than coughing into your face because we avoid the droplet part. But have we avoided the aerosolized droplet nuclei part? No. That's the issue. And that's what we want to talk about. Okay. Now, now we're going to look at droplets that were actually measured from SARS-CoV-2 in, in a Chinese hospital a couple of weeks ago. Okay. What sizes were they? Where were they found? And what does that mean? Because this is important, right? Okay. We're looking at resource 21. Okay. This, this article is called Aerodynamic Characteristics and RNA Concentration of SARS-CoV-2 Aerosol in Wuhan Hospitals During the COVID-19 Outbreak. It was published just a couple weeks ago. Okay. Basically, what it says is, 35 aerosol samples of three different types, total suspended particles, size segregated, and deposition aerosol were collected in patient areas, medical staff areas, um, and the public areas. Okay? Result, How do they capture them? They have these special filters, sort of like a HEPA filter, and they're air filters that capture and hold the particle there, and then they scrape it off of there, and then they do um, some PCR on it to, to see what's there. Uh, results. The ICU, CCU, and general patient rooms inside Renmin patient hall inside Fang Kang had undetectable or low airborne SARS-CoV-2 concentration, but deposition inside the ICU and the toilet tested positive. So the, so the ICU toilet... Is basically, that from fecal? No. Well, we don't know yet. We believe... It says bimodal distribution... What that means is bimodal is they basically said there was two different types of particles being laid down. They had small particles and big particles. And what they said, they weren't being laid down at the same time. What do you think when we apply this, this research to what we know about coughs and sneezes, what are, we, what are we seeing? I think probably the big particles are a sneeze and the small particles are coughs. That's exactly right. Which one was more dangerous? The cough. Okay. So let's get to it here. The peak concentration of SARS-CoV-2 aerosols appeared in two distinct size ranges, one in the submicron region with aerodynamic diameter dominant between 0.25 and 1 micrometer. Is that smaller than 5? 1 micrometer? 0.25 to 1. Yes. Yeah, it's 5 times smaller. to almost 6, 7, 8 times smaller, right? And the other peak was in the supermicron region with diameters larger than 2.5. Again, what do we think that is? Coughing versus sneezing. How about breathing? Remember we talked about when they did the, the, the WHO research? 
was breathing producing droplet nuclei or was it producing large particles? It was droplet nuclei. So they basically say that a cough is worth five minutes of, of talking. Okay. Okay. So when we're talking right now, am I producing large particles or small particles? Small particles. Small particles. And are those particles big enough or I'm sorry, are they small enough to get into my lower respiratory tract? Yes. Okay, so that's what they found. They found these particles so, in two different the, sizes. Keep your social distancing, even just well, talking. Well, we're going to find out does it work? Social does, does does social distancing work? Let's say this to start with. Does it work for direct spray droplets? If I'm sneezing, yes. the big ones. Yes. Do the big ones get suspended in the air? No, they're too heavy. They drop fairly quickly. What's the what's the distance of that then? We think it's six feet. Well, I was going to say we think, but I don't really but, know. But okay, let's just assume that six feet. But what about the droplet nuclei? We don't know. We don't know, but we're looking at it right now. Okay. Our findings add support to a hypothesis that virus-laden aerosol deposition may play a role in surface contamination and subsequent contact by susceptible people resulting in human infection. What does that mean? So, okay, they're breathing. They're coughing. Just like you're doing right now. Maybe the person doesn't waft through the, the plume and get it. But what happens? That coughing, the, those small nuclei and the large particles get suspended in the air. And then what happens? They drop onto a surface. They're saying right here. Then then someone touches the surface, touches their mouth or face, and then become infected. So not you don't, you don't just have to worry about the, I'm going to walk through someone's cloud. We also have to work about if they cough when they're pushing their shopping cart. They, they cough down and want to hide their cough. And they cough right on the shopping cart handle. What's the problem? It's all over the shopping cart handle, which is still infectious, well, right? if they're coughing, then it's going to stay in the air and you're going to walk behind them. But even it, but let's say, that, let's say that, that can't even be proven. What, what this research is saying is it doesn't matter because all that plume is going to infect all of these other surfaces. Mm -hmm. So what do you need to do? You wipe off everything before That's you touch right. it. That's right. You wipe off stuff before you touch it. Do you see why we use research to develop policies or, or programs or, or strategies to mitigate the virus or to, to break the transmission? As opposed to just winging it and saying, go through the drive-through, right? Because that mm -hmm. sounded good. We're looking at this data and we're saying, okay, if the data says... Virus-laden aerosol deposition may play a role in surface contamination and subsequent contact by susceptible people resulting in human infection. Wipe crap down, right, before you touch it. Is that being put out there right now? No. Sort of is, sort of isn't, right? There's a big thing saying stay at home, right? Mm -hmm. There's social distancing. But does anyone say if you are going to go out, say no one's around, does it tell you to wipe anything down? I think they're they're assuming people know how to do that, but people obviously when we went through the fast food place the other day, it obviously it's not it's not happens. sticking it's not if sticking. it is being synced because it's not being emphasized, right? This is why I'm doing this podcast is to to come up with well, we look at how does the virus actually work, and then what are the strategies we can use to keep us from getting it. That's what this is about, as opposed to just looking at 15 days to leave your lover and to make sure coronavirus goes away. Right. The problem with that is, is that some of those things work, some of them don't. In fact, some of them are actually terrible and and, and actually put us at risk for the virus. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Our finding confirmed that aerosol transmission as an important pathway for surface contamination. Okay. Up until this, <coughs> remember, this is from SARS-CoV-2. Okay. This isn't. This is very recent. 
didn't our guidance that came from uh, the CDC and President Trump saying surface contamination is is possible but not thought as a likely means of transmission? I think that's the biggest means of transmission. We don't know if it's the biggest or not, but it's we're not saying one. it's unlikely, though. This is basically saying is an important pathway for surface contamination. So we have to stop minimizing things that we think sound good to minimize and look at what are the facts, what are the things that actually happened. We believe one direct source of high SARS-CoV-2 aerosol concentration may be the resuspension of virus-laden aerosol from the surface of medical staff protective apparel while they are being removed. I take my gloves off. I take my mask off. I'm resuspending everything that's on my gloves. Now, if I'm breathing, say I'm in an environment where there is virus-laden particles, droplet nuclei in the air, and I'm using a ventilator-type N95 mask, which we're going to get into, is that is that where I'm breathing? Is it, is it the air concentrating and filtering? Is, is that starting to build up a concentrated area of virus on my mask? Probably. Has anyone said anything to people about be careful when you take the mask off to not brush it, shake it, move it around, or any of those types of things. Because all of that concentrated virus is now going to get resuspended in the air. You just took your mask off. So you took it. You're in an environment, right, that has a bunch of virus in the air. You're wearing all your protective gear, okay? You're in it for eight hours. It's a long shift. You come out, you go to a different room, take the gear off, right? As you're taking the gear off, what's happening? It's fluffing off of You're going to breathe in all the stuff you concentrated from eight hours. That's an issue. That's why, that's why we go through the research and then try to apply it to policy, okay? These resuspended virus-laden aerosol originally may come from the direct deposition of respiratory droplets or virus-laden aerosol onto their protective apparel while medical staff having worked long hours inside public areas as shown from the SARS-CoV-2 deposition results in IC room. Another possible source is the resuspension of floor dust aerosol containing virus that were transferred from the public area to another area. Are people wearing booties? You know, the little... Mm -hmm. I know they're that. not. It's not being prescribed right now. Did you see anything about wearing booties? And we're going to talk about what you're supposed to wear. You're supposed to wear no. eye mask, right? Mm -hmm. Supposed to wear face mask. face mask and a gown. Did anyone say a darn thing about covering your shoes up? Yet this is showing they got they feel that a possible source of the resuspension is the floor dust. If we wore protective boot little the little booties yeah, that little go over, ones. would that solve the problem? It wouldn't solve it. It would cut it, it way cut down. down. This is why. Why don't we look at the research to decide what is the appropriate PPE instead of just winging it? Well, we don't have booty, so let's not talk about it. I think because it's happening so fast, people are being reactive as opposed to proactive. But this this SARS-CoV-2 is not is not new. We know what SARS is. We had SARS in 2003. So we knew how to take care of it then. And what it is, is it's a failure of trying to prepare ahead of time that someone sits around. There used to be a department at the federal government where they looked at infectious disease. And now they, that, that department got axed in the budget. And what they did is they came up with these plans. In the event of a pandemic, we would do this, this, this and this and this. Instead of having to say, we inherited a broken machine. Now I have to fix the machine. Well, wait a minute. We knew about SARS back in 2003. We also knew about H1N1 in 2009. We thought that was going to be really bad. Just turned out it wasn't. Why didn't we prepare ahead of time? How much money would it have cost to just come up with, look at the data and come up with a PPE thing instead of doing it on the fly? Why not have that prepared ahead of time? What is the point of FEMA 
and Homeland Security if you're not preparing for eventualities. Pandemics aren't something that might happen. They're something that will happen just a matter of time. This is my frustration with this entire process. We look at the data. It's very clear. We can, we can glean what we need to do from it, yet we do nothing. The findings suggest virus-laden aerosols could first deposit on the surface of medical staff protective apparel and floors in patient areas, and then are resuspended by the movements of medical staff. What, what can we change about that? Change out your gear in an area away from the area you're going to put your clothes on. Like, don't do it in your locker room. Or there should be an area that, that you de-gear, take your PPE off, that's still an area that's controlled, right? Like Silkwood. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But but think about what we're saying. It's, it's, if we look at the data, we can come up with policies that are very simple. Don't, your shift's over, leave your gear on, walk out, walk through common areas and stuff and spreading everything that's on your gown and mask, then take it off. Go to a room that's right next to where your shift was, have that room designated the place where you de-gown, throw all that stuff away, have people constantly cleaning that room, and then leave that room then you're not spreading it everywhere. Oh, because if you're in if you're in an ICU unit or somebody where you have people that have confirmed cases, anything that's on you, if you walk into a more public area, you're going to take it with you. What happens if you walk from the public area into the ICU? This is where they think some of this stuff is coming from. So you're talking about people that have and I'm a doctor. Tested. I'm a doctor, right? I'm wearing my full PPE. Okay, I got called to uh, I don't know look at a lab result. Okay. Phone rings. I came out. I walked out of the off out of the ICU. Answered the phone. I'm in my PPE gear. Other people are milling around, right? They don't have to take them off. They're not required to. Well, I just got called. I'm going to turn around and go right back in there. Remember, there's not that much PPE to be keep changing them out. There's a shortage of PPE gear. Some in some cases, they're making people reuse it for multiple shifts, not just multiple patients. So that's what the problem is. So then I go back into the ICU. Didn't I just bring all that crap that I just picked up off the floor into the ICU? Yes. Okay, well, IC might be extreme. Just from one area of the hospital to another. Okay. In public areas outside the hospitals, I found this really interesting. We found the majority of sites have undetectable or very low concentrations of SARS-CoV-2 aerosol, except for one crowd gathering site about one meter to the entrance of a department store with customers frequently passing through and the other next to Remnant Hospital where outpatients and passengers pass by. It is possible that asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19 in the crowd may have contributed as a source of virus-laden aerosol during the sample period. A, a group, so so that they're smoking? No, what we're saying is, is that as you, it, it's, it's an entrance to get into a bigger area. People have to crowd together to get to that entrance. They're picking up that viral load sample from the entrance of the, that area. So this this does make sense of why we don't want crowds, right? Mm -hmm. If we put a bunch of people together, the viral <laughs> load goes up. The closer people are, if we have, if I'm in a room that's eight by eight, I have what sixty four square feet, right? Mm -hmm. Something like that. I could do cubic if I wanted to, right? But what I'm saying is, there's a there's a certain volume of air in there. Okay, if I have one person who's symptomatic in that volume of air. They're contaminating at a rate of every time they breathe, some of it's going in there. But if I have 50 people and 10 of them are, are symptomatic, aren't I increasing the rate of dirtying the air by 10 times? Yes. This is what they're saying is having a bunch of people in a small confined area is like an, an issue. Elevator. Yeah, an elevator. But, but this is an entrance in an open area. 
they still picked it up. It's showing, and and again, these are possibly asymptomatic carriers. What does this mean? This, this, this supports things like don't have groups of more than 10 people. It does support that. So those are the types of things that make sense to me. If we use this data to do things like that. Now, problem is though, <coughs> if we have groups of 10 people, right? We're taking the time to social distance. <coughs> we're taking the time to uh, self-quarantine and isolate. But if we go through the drive-thru, we're, we're, we're <laughs> driving up and talking to someone who just talked to 100 people in front of me. Or like, as you said, our COO was basically having to sign a uh, iPad that 50 other people have already signed. These are this, this is why we have to look at every aspect of what we're telling the community to do because they rely on the government and they rely on the experts to tell them what to do. And if we're given bad advice, we don't break the train of transmission. Okay. Let's look at resource 15. Okay, we're going to stay on this aerosolization and droplet thing, okay? Okay, now this is an image taken from uh, Teller et al., and it was done in 2019. And it basically, you're going to, if you're watching the video, you're going to see the image. It's talking about how airborne versus close contact, okay? There's this distinction we have to make. Close contact means is I'm close enough with you that if my droplets spew out, I, I get them on you. Airborne says, I can be coughing, I can be sneezing, I can put something on a surface. You could then come back later, put your beer on top of that, scratch across it, it would re-aerosolize and I could breathe it in. Do you see the difference between the two? One is directly the pathogen you're coming from my droplets onto you. Okay, that's close contact. That's what we're being told the six-foot rule is. Six-foot rule applies to that. It does not apply to aerosolization. Why? Aerosolization says that these particles, ones that are droplet nuclei, smaller than five micrometers, can float and waft in the air for three hours. Well, if they, how fast do you think air is moving around? It depends on the building. Right. But even with, with just <clears throat> normal air patterns, if you look, you know, sit on your couch, look at the window and watch dust move yeah. through the sunbeams. You get a sense of things are always moving, right? Mm -hmm. Dust is constantly moving around. It's not just sitting there not moving at all. Imagine the dust where it travels in three hours, okay? Now, imagine you had a fan going, or imagine you had a door opening, or imagine you, window you a window, or the air conditioning kicked on. Well, what happened? Well, you, we look, when that happens, watch what happens in, in, in looking through that sunbeam of dust. Turn the air conditioning on, watch it, and all of a sudden it starts moving. Huh? Aerosolization transmission, airborne transmission of airborne virus is, we're susceptible by breathing it, not necessarily by having droplets spilled on us. And we can breathe it directly from the air or some fomite that gets disturbed and then it re-aerosolizes and we can breathe that. What is the risk profile of aerosolization versus close contact droplet spray? Well, aerosolization can get into your lower lungs. But the risk, the chances of you getting sick from close contact versus airborne, the risk, exponentially higher because the persistence of the fact that you got three hours of these particles <clears throat> in the air. But wait a minute, three hours in the air, then they, that, that what happens at the end of three hours, they've all done what? Fallen onto a surface. But then what happens? I come in and I wipe the surface. I re-aerosolize them. How long are they going to last? Most Three hours. more hours. So how long does the cycle persist? Depends on if the surface isn't cleaned. How? Okay, but you, you cleaned it and then that went back in the air. How, how are you cleaning the air? 
So you resuspended it. Now the other three hours they fall back down. You put your beer down on it and resuspend it. I put my hand on it and resuspend it. I keep resuspending it. It goes for however long that the, the virus can can last. How long can the virus last on smooth surfaces? Five days. Five days. So do we see now that we're talking about we can have someone from five days ago sneeze or cough, most likely cough, and then through a process of re-aerosolization through the fomite, breathe that in and still be transmissions, have the transmission. That's far more contagious than saying social distancing of six feet. Now, what's cool about social distancing, the, one, the part where you stay at home and don't talk to other people, why does that work? Because it's just you in the house so you're not breathing in other people's stuff because they're not in your home. But what if you need to go to the, to the pharmacy? Well, then you're going to be where So now are. social distancing only works to the extent that you social distance, right? Oh, that you contain yourself in your own home. But if you go to the pharmacy, what happens? Someone gets a blood pressure cuff. There's a blood pressure cuff. They want to get their blood pressure tested. They sit there and they cough on it. You come in an hour later and say, my blood pressure feels pretty high. Put your touch the button, put your hand in there. What just happened? You could just infected you, you yourself. You could have infected yourself, right? So here's what the problem is, is we're not talking about this because we don't want to panic, okay? But before we panic, the first thing we have to look at is to be realistic about how does a transmission occur. And then secondly, we need to look at what are the symptoms like? How lethal is this device, right? And then another thing to look at is how effective is the, the PPE that we're giving our healthcare workers and then we're telling other people not to wear because there's not enough of it. Does it actually work? Okay. Does that make sense of what we're talking about on testing criteria and aerosolization, okay? Yes. Now, I'm going to get into something controversial and scary for a minute here, okay? Before everyone reacts and freaks out when I start reading and talking about this stuff, we still have to get to the point where we talk about how serious is this, is this disease? What happens if you get it, okay? And we haven't got there yet. That'll probably happen tomorrow. So before everyone just says doom and gloom and oh my gosh, the end of the world is coming, please keep in mind that all what we're looking at right now is routes of transmission and the realistic research-based facts on how this virus actually works or viruses that are very close to it like SARS-CoV-1, okay? I am going to talk about resource 14. It's called Amoy, Amoy Gardens, okay? Now, this article was done in 2004. It was done in the New England Journal of Medicine. Hopefully we can all agree that if something's published in the New England Journal of Medicine, it's had some scholarly rigorous review. Could we say that? Mm -hmm. So it's not like on somebody's blog or Wired or one of those things or, or Infowars or something like that or Fox News or CNN or anything type of thing. Any of the fake news, any of the things that could go on. This is actually done by a, one of the leading peer-reviewed Articles, okay? The, uh, <coughs> journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, okay? This is the original article. It basically says, evidence of airborne transmission of severe acute respiratory syndrome virus. This was SARS-CoV-1. It occurred in 2003 in Hong Kong. Okay, this is to me something that we really need to pay attention to. What happened was this. They had a, a apartment complex, okay? And in this apartment complex, there was, I'll read it to you. There was a fat, the fatality rate of SARS-CoV-1, and we're going to talk about how we calculate fatality, was, was anywhere between 11 and 17%. That's really high, okay? Mm -hmm. 
didn't we talk about yesterday that when we looked at the spike proteins that the differences between CoB1 and CoB2 were that the spike proteins adhere 10 to 20 times more in CoB2. <coughs> but let's just say for the sake of argument that they're equally infectious, even though there's research to suggest that CoB2 is more infectious. Let's just say for the sake of argument that they're equally effective as SARS-CoV-1, okay? Okay. The large community outbreak in the Amoy Gardens housing complex affected more than 300 residents of this private housing estate. The index patient infected with the SARS virus visited Unit 7 on a middle floor of Building E on March 14th and again on March 19th and used the toilet. The patient had diarrhea. Subsequent cases of SARS, categorized according to the apartment, were located in clusters in four buildings on certain floor levels. Previously available reports have not provided a satisfactory explanation of the features of the outbreak in the Amoy Gardens Hotel. We analyze the available data with reference to spatial distribution of the cases in this outbreak and use models based on airflow dynamics to investigate the possibility of airborne transmission of the SARS virus. Okay, spoiler alert. These were buildings that were separated 60 meters apart from each other. Not six feet, 60 meters, which is how many feet? Roughly 180 feet, maybe a little tiny bit more. What they found was is this person went into one of the buildings, okay, used the potty, left, came back about a week later, used the potty, left, okay. In that interim time, um, what they found was is that there was a 99 people in that first building became infected with SARS, but people in other buildings, according to airflow, which way the wind was blowing, got affected in a plume-like pattern, okay. So I'm if you're watching the video, you're going to see the resource, basically, that shows the pattern. Basically, it was a northeasterly wind. It said, the prevailing wind during the period of possible explosion was northeasterly, or roughly perpendicular to the exterior of the walls apartments of, D, of D, units D, C, and D, A in building E. The distance between buildings E and B is 60 meters. The direction from which the wind blows shifted from nearly north to east and even southeast. The red dot in building E indicates the unit that the index patient visited. The index patient is a person who they knew had the, the, the SARS, okay? The directional <coughs> indicator for units of the lower right-hand corner indicates the direction that each unit faced in the direction, directional code used to designate an apartment unit. Uppercase letters denote first front-facing windows, okay? What they found was... Date of onset of symptoms. All the symptoms came at around the exact same time. So when the first argument, when the WHO went in there, they, they said, well, what happened is, is that somebody from the first building then went and talked to somebody who was in the other building and then they got them sick. And then, then those people got the other people sick. If that was the case, when we look at traditional epidemiology, we would see a sort of staggered one person leads to another, leads to another. But in this particular case, all of the symptoms emerged at one time from all the buildings within a one-day period. So does that make it possible that everyone could have quickly gone out and talked to everybody else? Probably not. No, when they looked at the airflow modeling <clears throat> too, they found that the, the units that were facing that building in the middle and the blower floors had more had more, more transmission, more cases than, than building, than units that were facing the opposite direction on the other side. Any place that was in that plume from the airflow People, that's where the cluster of sickness came from. What does that mean? What is, what is this article trying to say without spending a ton of time? They went through odds ratios. They went through modeling of, of air. Basically, what it's saying is, is that the wind blew 
The, 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 the people opened the windows, they flushed the toilets. When they flushed the toilet, they had an exhaust fan. They had exhaust fans running on each of the buildings. It sucked in the plume from the, from the flushing of the toilets. And the wind blow, blew that stuff to the other buildings. People actually got sick from 60 meters away. So what does that do to our six-foot rule? Kind of keeps that up. Now, this is SARS-CoV-1, okay? And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that SARS-CoV-2 <clears throat> acts the same way. But when we look at transmission characteristics of SARS-CoV-1 and 2, structurally, they're almost the same, except for COVID-2 likes to stick, tend to, tend to, can more easily stick to a cell 10 to 20 more times. Structurally, the proteins are not, not that much different. So what does that mean? Well, right now, what we're saying is, is that we need to stop talking about the fact that the only way that you can get this disease is if I, if I cough in your direction from six feet away, okay? What does this support? What, what are some of the good policies? I keep saying this over and over again. Social distancing and staying at home. Does that work? Yes. Well, social distancing is the six-foot rule. So, yeah, that cuts down on the droplet part, though, right? Mm -hmm. Someone like coughing. But does it cut, cut down on the aerosolization? No. So it gives you a false sense of security that's saying, if I'm six feet away from you, I'm fine, right? That doesn't account for the aerosolization and the fomite stuff, right? You could have touched something. It, it, it totally blows up the whole drive-through and delivery of food, doesn't it? Well, it depends on how the food is delivered. No, really. How, how, how else do you do it? <clears throat> well, I touch the bag. If you're not wearing gloves, could well, you pick you it up from the bag? Gloves. One of the restaurants in town is when you order, you pay on the app, and then they go and they sit it down on a table, and then you come and pick it up. Okay, but again, is that the policy just being put out by the by Arizona? And no, it's no, it's not. It basically just go through the drive-through. It doesn't say, hey, and by the way, at the drive-through, you should be wearing masks, gloves, change them out, clean everything. They never said any of that. So when we went through the drive-through at McDonald's, what last night? Night before, no, night before, was anybody wearing any protective equipment? It's the guy with the garbage. The guy with the up. garbage blowing up his glove and, and pretending it's a rooster. That's what they were doing. People are not taking this seriously at all. No, I'm not saying that take it serious, but the fact we're all going to die. I'm talking about routes of transmission and and strategies, so mitigation strategies, so we don't have to get sick if we, if it's if if it's not necessary, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is the guidance being put out by the government. The problem is the government guidance is in conflict with what the research says. We've had this SARS article out since 2004. Why didn't we consult it to look at the fact that airborne transmission, not only is it possible, it was proven in this particular case. <coughs> We're not talking about a disease that's so much different, like, you know, uh, Ebola or things like that, which is very infectious. We're talking about SARS-CoV-1. This is SARS-CoV-2. They're very, very close to each other, size-wise and everything else. I don't know the answer. Okay. I'm going to end this last question, and then we're going to take a commercial break with something from a Dr. Brousseau. And I like what he's saying. He's basically going to sum up all the things I just got done saying, okay? So this is resource number 16. And again, I harped on this and spent a long time on this because this aerosolization thing should change how we... And what the how we what policies we have in place and how we enforce them, whether or not they actually make sense with what the research says, right? Dr. Brousseau is a national expert in respiratory protection and infectious diseases and professor of the University of Illinois at Chicago. Okay, and it says many experts in public health have, for very good reason, voiced frustration at the lack of science-based information they regard they read regarding the ongoing COVID-9 pandemic. This is compounded by sometimes conflicting recommendations by WHO and the CDC. 
by applying what we know about similar infectious diseases and pairing it with the data shown so far with this novel coronavirus and what common sense tells us, we can advise both healthcare professionals and the general public on what steps they can take to minimize their risk. Pretty much I just said that, right? Mm -hmm. I like this guy because he's an expert and is saying pretty much what we're trying to get to the point is, is use the data, use the evidence and use the research on similar diseases to guide your policy as opposed mm-hmm. to just, first it was a hoax. Now you got other people saying, just go out to internet. And people now are saying the death rate 3.8%. It's not 3.8%. Don't exaggerate the death rate. Okay. He says, it's okay to say that we're still gathering evidence. Often as an often ignored yet important mode of transmission for infectious respiratory diseases, close range aerosol transmission needs to be part of the equation. And I'll detail the science on that later. By taking lessons from recent research on similar aerosol transmissible diseases such as SARS-1 and MERS, both similarly caused by coronaviruses and influenza, the following conclusion can be drawn. Better communication is needed. Infection prevention, medical and public health professionals should be communicating to everyone that the exact modes of transmission for SARS-CoV-2 are unknown. There are no studies yet to support any particular mode of transmission over another. The precautionary principle suggests we should approach this organism as we would any novel, highly transmissible respiratory disease as a contact, droplet, and airborne disease. But with one important caveat, short-range aerosol transmission is also a strong possibility. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. We need to, here's his next point. We need to, I'm I'm cutting through this, a very long article. We need to strategically protect healthcare workers. Healthcare organizations should be protecting their workers and patients by following CDC guidelines. They should be rapidly triaging patients as they come in the door, rapidly separating and isolating those with respiratory symptoms and ensuring all of their workers are fit tested and have respirators. We're gonna get into that after the break. For aerosol generating procedures, the CDC should be recommending respirators with higher levels of protectors than an N95. In the face of supply shortages, the CDC last week changed its recommendations to allow the use of medical masks instead of respirator, saving the latter for aerosol generating procedures. Healthcare organizations must return to using respirators for confirmed and suspected COVID-19 patients because we're going to find out surgical masks don't help them. Well, now you've got a lot of people that are actually getting sewing groups and taking fabric to make masks out of fabric, which is incredibly, it's not a tight knit. Again. I, I, I mean, I, it, I, you look at it, it's like, is it better than nothing? Then yes, but is it adequate for our healthcare system? Why would we not strategically stockpile <clears throat> these things? I don't know. I know that Arizona is getting a delivery, was it in the next couple of days, of uh, the national stockpile, but... But that's just after how many weeks of transmission? Yeah, I don't know the answer. The problem with this is, is that if we have a political priority, or sometimes that somehow it gets the buzz attention that we can do that. But why? This is why we needed that office that got cut. That basically said we need to prepare for a pandemic ahead of time, so that in case there's a pandemic, we we solve this problem. I'm not saying that South Korea is perfect, but they've planned ahead for this, and they're far more efficient in both their testing capability capacity. And, and, and their policies. Well, they've also flattened their curve pretty quick. Yeah. We're not doing that. Italy's not doing that. Things like that. So, um, you know, we have the lar- one of the largest deficits now, and we have the, the biggest defense bill spending. How is this not a defense issue? I don't understand. We're talking about homeland security. 
if half the population, the economy is going to at least go into a recession, let's, let's say that or come close to recession, um, we have all kinds of issues with uh, you know what we're, people traveling and moving around. Is our country stable? Is it secure? Homeland Security should be looking at pandemics as a source of security for this nation. Why don't we prepare for pandemics ahead of time by stockpiling things like this? They're not particularly expensive to, to make. They last for a pretty darn long time. We could rotate them through. Um, these are the type of things that in, in the event of that there was something like FEMA could quickly deploy these things, but yet we don't do any of those things. We're, we're busy giving tax breaks to billionaires, but instead of we could take that, take some, even 0.001% of the defense budget would have solved this, at least the PPE crisis. Is there enough PPE to go around? So people don't, so ICU nurses and doctors don't have to sew, go to Hobby Lobby and sew up their own gowns. That's ridiculous. Okay. I'm going to continue with what he has to say. What the public can do. The public should avoid crowded spaces, stay home when possible, prepare for a lengthy period of time at home in case of quarantine, and follow public health and government instructions, which, okay, public and government health instructions have been somewhat... Uh, yeah, I mean, some of it made sense, like the, the whole 15 days social distancing is better than not doing it, but like go to the drive-thru, not so great. They should call ahead to a medical professional when having COVID-19 system rather than, than add to an already crowded waiting room, okay? So that's important. Call ahead. Don't just show up. Problem is, is there's no direct research-based evidence describing exactly how SARS-CoV-2 is transmitted. Many sources say that COVID-19 is transmitted only by droplets and contact, but guidance from leading public health groups and transmission rates are inconsistent and conflicting, Okay. The WHO says, based on the available evidence, <coughs> the COVID-19 virus is transmitted between people through close contact and droplets, not by airborne transmission. This is WHO saying that doesn't happen through airborne, yet we have data to support that it does. In risk communication guidelines for healthcare, however, the WHO says, COVID-19 appears to spread most easily through close contact with an infected person. When someone who has COVID-19 coughs or sneezes, small droplets are released in are released. And if you are too close, you can breathe in the virus. This is emphasis was added by, by a doctor. But wait, inhalation is not a part of the traditional definition of droplet transmission. Close range aerosol transmission. Underlying the CDC and WHO, WHO statements about transmission is this. Inhalation of particles near the source may be an important mode of transmission. Based on research now more than 70 years out of date, the infection control paradigm of contact droplet and airborne transmission fails to recognize inhalation of small airborne particles very close to an infection source, i.e. Within, within six feet. Some everyday examples might help for illustration. Have you ever seen dust particles traveling through the air in a beam of light? Have you ever, some of these eventually deposit on surfaces, but many remain airborne for long periods. Have you ever used hairspray or aerosolized cooking oil? Many of those droplets remain airborne nearby as you inhale particles and smell hairspray and cooking oil for several minutes. The same thing happens when someone coughs. Talking, breathing, coughing, and sneezing create an aerosol, a suspension of particles in the air containing particles in a range of sizes with viable infectious organisms present in both small and large particles. Okay, I think I've sort of made my point here, right? Now, there's a, there's a graphic that you're going to see, and it's talking about He's got a person facing each other, another person within six feet, another person more like 10 feet away, okay? Someone 
person A is facing person B. First, person C is facing those two, but he's farther away. Person A coughs. There's two, di two different particle size, the big particles and little particles. And what you're going to see on the screen is, is a lot of the big particles have fallen at the feet of both person A and B. But what you're going to see is over time, the little particles have, have reached person C. And those little particles are infected all three people. Okay, so the likelihood of infection from close-range aerosols. Higher doses of infectious particles are more likely to result in infection and disease. Healthcare workers whose work brings them close to more people with more severe symptoms and relatively enclosed spaces are more at risk than the general public at being exposed to a dose of infectious particles. The Wuhan China experience supports the likelihood of close-range aer close aerosol transmission. And our last point that we're going to make from this is droplet transmission less likely important than thought. Droplet transmission is probably much less important for most respiratory infection diseases than is short-range aerosol transmission by inhalation. Aerosol particles are not all large and they do not immediately all fall to the ground. It is rare for coughs or sneezes to be propelled into nearby mouths or noses. The eyes, however, may be a portal of entry for some infectious organisms such as influenza viruses. Therefore, diseases that are considered airborne must be also be capable of transmitting disease by inhalation of aerosols near the source. What do we get out of this? What did you get out of that, of, of what Dr. <coughs> Rousseau has to say? Um, that the aerosolation is more problematic than droplets. Exactly. Okay. We are going to take a commercial break. And then um, time-wise, because this is going to be really good. Do you want to wrap up after the commercial yeah, break? Yeah, we're going to. We're we'll gonna, when when we come back, tomorrow. we're going to. Uh, we're going to do. We'll do tomorrow. Uh, we'll, we'll come back tomorrow and do that. So um, we're going to do our commercial break, and then we'll end our segment. I'll come back from the uh, from the commercial break, and then I'll end the segment. And then tomorrow we're going to get into uh, appropriate PPE. Um, how lethal <clears throat> is uh, SARS-CoV? and uh, kind of go from there. Sound good? Yep. Okay, commercial break time. What do we got for us, Chris? Well, so I was on Facebook last night and some different, I think I was on Instagram too, um, looking at different things. And one of my friends on Facebook had an idea of what she's doing with her clients. Cause we're, you know, we're are talking about um, what can we do to protect ourselves? But we all also are in business and what can we do to protect our finances? And if you can't see a patient coming in, then, you know, how are you going to basically make money? Well, isn't the other driver in addition to that, the fact that these patients um, are, who are getting these, these, these scheduled treatments now can't get their treatments. So they can't get their treatments. I mean, if you've seen... So this helps the patient too. This helps the patient. This isn't so, all about you making money. No, what I tried to figure out and what I think my friend was doing, which was brilliant, she was doing um, facials and chemical peels that you could take home or send home with your patient so they could get a treatment. Now, it's not going to be the same type of treatment you would do in your room. It's not going to be really corrective. But with that plus the home care you're going to sell them, it should keep them okay until they come back. Cool. So What do you, what do you got? What did I got, invent? <laughs> well, this is very cool. This has not been released into the wild. And the reason is we're getting ready, well, we were getting ready to do testing um, well, it's, it. it's already got a lot of its non-clinical testing. We yeah. We're getting ready to do a clinical trial. We're getting ready to do a clinical but trial. But as this device sits now, this is appropriate as a class one device because it's it stays in the three. epidermis. Yes. Right. So, but 
So what do we got? Show me what, what's the name of it syringe. and what does it work? Okay, so this is called a Steri stamp. Okay, so I'm going to hold it up to the camera here and then hold it really okay. still. And then this is a syringe. Okay, so <clears throat> tell me what I have in my hand. Well, basically what you have is two different devices in one. One is a manual microneedling stamp or okay. actually micro channels or... Okay, and I can adjust the, the depth from no. 0 to 0.3. It's, it just starts at 0.3. Oh, okay. So, so it goes to point three. No, no depth adjustment. No. Got it. So basically, what you would do is, um, like our skin stylist family, um, they would get our product, which is our. Uh, so first, tell me about the device. So, okay. So it goes so, to point three, and, I, and what do I do? I stamp it down onto the skin, and little tiny needles come out and go into the skin. Well, it's easier to explain with the syringe. Okay. So let me do that. You tell me what I'm doing. And I'll so do basically, it. So I take you're the syringe. Going, you're going to load up. Um, in your office with a sterile needle or a cannula, you're going to load up anywhere between one, one and a half to two cc's of product into the syringe. So it's a regular lure lock syringe, Yes. Right? And then you're going to cap it to send it home with your patient. Okay, so the patient takes the product home in the syringe. They take, yeah. So you're going to give your patient um, this, which will be in a sterile bag, this, which you're going to put back so in the bag. you're not going to open this yet. No. You're going to open this and fill this with product. And you're yes. going to give this to the patient and give them the bag. Yes. Okay. So let's say they get home. What happens? Okay. So you're going to teach them, one, how to cleanse their So you'll their have face. one to show them how to do yeah, it. Yeah. I'm okay. going to be doing a video on it. Um, so they'll clean their face with a cleanser and then they'll wipe off their skin with, let's say, alcohol. Um, and then they will take their syringe, do, so take the cap do. off of the syringe, okay, and lure it on and to, I'm then just attach to the steristamp. Okay, yes. cool. Okay. Okay, it's together now. Yes. Now, this little section is more for the clinician, so they don't really need it. But if they wanted to, then these two pieces would be put on both the barrel yeah, and the plunger. So basically, this part goes on the on, on the plunger. plunger. And this gives them a thumb ring to make it so it's a little easier to apply. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And then thumb ring adjusts right here, like this. So people have different size thumbs. And then, and then this, this goes on the actual T part, and they just click this into here, right? Yes. Maybe. Okay. Okay. And then when they grab it, they can grab it like this. Yes. Okay. So, so what do they get on? Do they have to use this black part here? They don't. Can you tell them just ignore you it if you wanted to? You can tell them to ignore it. It's, it's more for okay, a so clinician's use. Okay, I'm going to take it back off again. Okay? Okay. I'm just going to say, for now, this is most for clinician use, but this is we showed them out. So now we're back to just a normal yes. Lurlock syringe. What do I got going here? Do I have anything I have to unscrew? No. Okay. It's just ready to go. Okay. So basically what they're going to do is they're going to push on the plunger. You're going to see a little bit of tiny product. So a little product. blood's going to come out the center yeah. of this. And then they're going to tip it upside down, keep their finger off the plunger, and they're going to press down on the like skin. Like a pricing gun. Yes. It, they, so basically are the needles out before you press? No. So then you push down, boom, needles come yeah, you out. You can feel them. Yeah, I feel them. Mm -hmm. And you pull it back out. Yes. Change position. Push, put, put it, push down, needles come out, stop, move again. Can I poke myself right now? No. Okay. Push, push, push. At the same time, I'm pushing a little bit of product out at a time, right? So, so that it stays wet there. Yes. Right? So I'm pushing a little bit, then I'm going like this. Should I be pushing with my thumb on the plunger? No, you're going to lose all your product. Yeah. So you basically push a little bit out and then stamp, 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 stamp in a pattern, overlap, right? Uh-huh. Then what happens? 
Well, at the end of the treatment, when they've done their entire face, if they're doing um, just the face, you could probably use just one cc to one and a quarter. <coughs> if they're doing face, neck, then you want more serum. If they're doing face, neck, and deck, uh, decolletai, um, I would probably say maybe two cc's to two and a half. At the end of it, um, some of you, especially our skin cellist users, know what a stereotype is. But do we even need to do that part? Because we're going to use it all up. So do we even need to get into the stereotype piece of it to make this simple? We don't have to, but they I'd could. say not. Okay. So basically what, what Chris was going to say is this comes apart and you can take what's left of the product and smear it on your face with the soft part. But we're going to tell people to use the whole product. We want this to be as simple as possible for patients. So what is this really doing? You're, it's actually like a mechanical exfoliation. So it's a mechanical exfoliation that polishes the, the skin. Into the top of the stratum corneum. Okay. And it's allowing product to get onto the skin without having to use your fingers to wipe it on. So is this as good as microneedling? It's not corrective. But, but it's it great help? for age management and it's going to do in a pinch. The, the one thing, I mean, you can't send them home with your skin stylus. You can't send them home if you use a different device. You can't send that home with them. You also wouldn't want to because you want them to have a treatment, um, but you want that treatment to not be the same type of treatment you can do in your room because so they're going to screw up and do something. Like, like, no, not so at all. How, I mean, are you stealing their clients by selling you that song? I'm not, selling, not selling this to the, to the clients. You're I'm selling, selling this to, to my the clients. The they're selling it to their patients. That. So the clinician, you're selling this to the clinicians who are turning around using the product they choose to use. We, we make recommendations of what products to use, but they can you know, pretty much use what they want. And then they're selling that to their clients as a means of having an at-home treatment so yes. they don't have to do so this whole social distancing thing. Yes. So, so you're going to come up with pricing for this very shortly, is that right? I am. And there's going to be pricing, um, obviously for skin stylist users, we usually give them a little bit of a break on pricing, but that pricing will be out because uh, I know that I've got more than skin stylist users listening. Now let um, me ask you this. Isn't there a product that's similar out there, something like Aqua Gold? Yes. And what was the problem with that Aqua Gold? It's like $175 a, a vial. And it's a little jar. And it's also and, and 0.6. You, and it doesn't have a spring on it. And then you can poke the needles. This has the spring-loaded piece, the safety thing to it. And yeah. then it hooks to the lursery so you can put more product in there. Yes. And it's also not as expensive. And there's our 0.6. So this is 0.3. Now, what you're going to notice is different markings with different numbers on it. This has nothing to do with you right now. This is um, when we change the mold and... Uh, go through our testing. Eventually, we'll be able to go deeper. We'll with be able to go deeper. Depth. As but it sits now, now it's 0.3. It's so set at 0.3. You can see it very, very tiny coming out at the top at 0.3. And that's significant when we talk about the FDA because the FDA has clearly said now in the microneedling guidance that came out in June of 2018 that if you're the of the purpose of the product is to Exfoliate. exfoliate or polish, polish the, the skin. skin, it's not a class two device. So therefore it's exempt. It's a class one exempt device. Yes. I'm the one who went to make sure that we did all of those things to make sure we complied with the letter of the law. So this product can be used at home. Yes. We, we You could also use it in your clinic as well. You but the point is, is that with this whole social distancing and everyone canceling, this allows you, you could ship this to them or have mm -hmm. them pick it up and they could do a treatment. Yeah, and you could, I mean, if you single wanted use to, though, right? it is a single use. So, and that's, so that's the thing you're going to have to tell your patients. They can only use it one time, then it must be thrown away. But what happens is, is if you only if you already give them the product, then and they're once out of that product, product's gone. once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. And you're going to want to confirm that they've thrown it away. Yeah. Um, but you can also enhance it if you have any favorite masks that you use afterwards or any other type of serums that you want them to use afterwards. Um, at point three, they don't need to numb up. It's well, not awesome. painful. So what, what about the forehead? Could it be? It's, I've done mine. It doesn't hurt. Okay. 
um, it, it doesn't hurt. It's just one of those things when I was thinking last night and I saw my friend's post and I said, that's right. sent her a text. I said, that's really smart. Um, it's like, you know, we're in the same boat as everybody else that we're not getting income um, because I'm not working um, in my clinic. And the people that are listening to us, a lot of your practitioners, you're not working in your clinic right now, or maybe you've cut back on it or you've got clients that canceled you and you didn't cancel them you're still open but they don't feel comfortable coming in it gives you an opportunity to do a treatment for them in their home with them doing it that is they're higher. doing their own treatment they're doing their own treatment so it's a higher end treatment though it's not just lotions and potions um i mean at point three for age management it's it's actually a very nice treatment well, we've it's, seen some efficacy from this it, as it well. is so it, and I'm not, as a practitioner myself and a clinician, I am not selling these to the general public. I'm not selling these on Amazon. I'm not selling them anywhere. And these are only ever going to be sold to, to clinicians. clinicians. And then it the clinicians. It was designed to be used in the clinician's office where you can yes. adjust the depth. I've just modified them so they can be used for at home because they're stuck at point three. Yeah. So that's going to be something. Um, that's going to come out soon, right? It is going to come out soon. It's going to come out this coming week. Um, and how do they get a hold of you? Aesthetic Advisor, which is uh, at gmail.com, which is E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-D-V-I-S-O-R at gmail.com. You can also, um, if you're on our Facebook page for Aesthetic Advisor Laser Academy, you can leave me a PM. What about a skin stylist page for Instagram? Can they get a hold of for you For Instagram, you can DS, DM us at skin stylist on Instagram. Okay. Um, so there's lots of ways to get a hold of us, but we're trying to come up with ideas for you to be able to sell treatments to your clients in the privacy of their home where they don't have to come in. Again, I, I know some of you are still working, um, but you will have clients that cancel you, not you canceling them. So this gives you an opportunity to give them a nice treatment at home that's a little bit on the higher end. We'll keep them maintained because, I mean, we come out of this quarantine, I have bushy brows and then raggedy yeah. nails and oh my god yeah. my hair larry's gonna be doing my hair color this week and so if i look like i have a yarmulke on my head in the next couple of days it's because he is going to do my hair because i'm worth it and i'm really scared <laughs> um, um let me ask you this chris is there going to be a discount on the normal pricing of this are we doing a corona coupon with this we're probably gonna do a corona coupon okay, too good. now um, but here's the other piece that i wanted to point out and this is my own public service thing is, is that there's a shortage of ppe and there's Health, fellow healthcare practitioners who are going with either going without being forced to use it for multiple patients or forced to make their own. Um, we're going to take a, a significant portions of the proceeds from the sale of these and donate that to healthcare provider PPE supplies. We're also going to take a, a significant portion of our own PPE we have in our med spa. We're going to donate that to a local hospital, something like Banner or something like that. We encourage everybody else to do mm -hmm. the same thing. If you've got extra stuff. Yeah, and this is the problem that I've had. I said yesterday I was going to say one way or the other whether you should be practicing aesthetics or not. I'm sort of leaning towards the fact that with this huge shortage of PPE, I feel like at least something considers the fact that consider donating your PPE as opposed to, to seeing patients because literally it's getting bad out there for these healthcare workers who are putting their lives at risk to take care of very sick people and they don't have the protective equipment mm -hmm. that they need. So we feel strongly that we're, we're going to try to give back. We're going to take, a, again, I'll cover the cost of these things and then the rest of it's going to go to cover the, to, to buy new PPE. And uh, it just gives it gives you a chance to to you know make some money with your clients, and it gives your clients a chance to get a treatment, and it gives us a chance to raise some funds for fellow healthcare workers who need PPE. Um, and we're also um, 
are going to donate what PPE we have here. Yeah. And we encourage you to do the same. Yeah. One of um, an account that I do a lot of training with um, for lasers is Laser Away. And they've closed, I think they have 58 shops now. And they are donating a lot of their yeah, excess to them of for doing that. their PPE to healthcare providers. So Dr. Will Kirby, um, awesome job. Um, I saw it on your LinkedIn and um, very, very happy to see you doing that. And if you have extra, these people honestly need it more than uh, sitting in our room. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is really, if we look at what the guidance is saying them, right? We talked about that earlier, is that the people that need the PPE are, are not the sick people anymore. The people that need PPE are the healthcare workers <clears throat> who need to protect themselves so they don't have, they don't have to get sick. Because what happens if a, a bunch of healthcare workers go down in the ICU? Or emergency room. We can't replace them. We can't. And then we're already spiking the system and overwhelming it. We can't have this happen. This is a real crisis. This is the crisis. The crisis is to the healthcare provider. <coughs> if, he, if he or she goes down, can't provide <coughs> the services for the people who need it the most. Yeah. So this is where I don't know why we're not spending more money on this. I don't know why this is not a, a strategic issue with Homeland Security, a Defense Department issue. Uh, you know, World Health Organization, we can put money towards silly things, but we can't put money towards PPE. So we're going to do, do our little part. We advise you to do the same. Yeah, if everybody can do just a little bit, it actually will add up to a lot. I mean, if you've got cavi wipes, if you've got gloves, if you've got masks, um, whatever you have, if you can spare some, if you've put it away, like, you know, I, I stock a lot of things just because I'm the what if person. Well, now some of my what if stuff is going to go to help other people. Um, that actually need it more than me. So we just encourage you to, you know, look at what your stock is. What can you get by with letting some people have? Um, and again, I, when I saw them laser away, I, you know, I am giving them props right now. And, yeah, there's, uh, there's a bunch of people. I also see a bunch of people busy working on their clients, and I'm not, I'm not trying to take that away from you. It's just something you got to think through. <laughs> Is because you know in a month or two weeks from now that PPE is so scarce that people are getting sick. Was it really worth it that you did, uh, you know, a laser underarm? I don't know. You got to think through these things. I also saw a uh, Instagram post where people were eating food with their mask down around their chin. Remember, we just talked about that. That PPE concentrates that virus right on the surface of that, and that's right in proximity to what you're eating. Consider what you're doing with a PPE. Wear it correctly or don't wear it at all. If you're not going to seal the mask, you're not going to then dispose of it when you're done seeing the patient. You're, you're really just doing a fashion statement. And, and, and in fact, you're actually concentrating the virus and making it so, not just virus, and there's influenza and everything else out there. You're making it more likely for you to get sick, mm -hmm. not less. So that's something to consider. Um, we're going to um, take a... Uh, end today. We're going to end today. And then when we come back uh, tomorrow, we're going to get into uh, what is proper PPE. We're going to look at the lethality of SARS-CoV-2. Um, and if we have time, we're going to talk about does SARS-CoV-2 infect pets and can pets transmit SARS-CoV-2? All right. Thanks so much for every uh, for everybody sp spending time with us. I know this one wasn't quite as fun. Um, we'll get back to being silly and fun and frolicking in an autumn mist shortly. <laughs> frolicking. But I wanted to make sure that the autumn aerosolized mist, uh, I wanted to make sure that we really talk about the testing and this aerosolization risk. And then I, tomorrow, what you're going to see is that when we start talking about rates of mortality and transmission, we're going to be actually presenting some good news, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. We're going to be showing that in many cases, in fact, in all cases, we, we, we can look at the leading epidemiologists, look at statisticians, and look at the data that the actual rate of mortality is a lot lower than what's being reported, and we can prove that. So uh, we're going to talk about that tomorrow. 
Um, and thank you again. Um, I look forward to your guys' questions and concerns. One thing I would request is if there's a healthcare facility or provider, uh, we're not exactly sure where to donate this stuff because <laughs> I've looked at, I did a full Google search on who's who's accepting donations and I just don't see that anybody is. I know that Banner needs it and things like that, but uh, if you could let, either PM us or email us, hey, we you know we would like to have your PPE and money. Uh, let us know and we'll take care of that. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Take care. Thanks, campers. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Evidence-Based Aesthetics Podcast with your hosts, Kristen and Dr. Larry Group. For more discussion and information on all things aesthetic, be sure to join our Facebook group and follow us on our Instagram page. We look forward to sharing the next exciting episode of the Evidence-Based Aesthetics Podcast.